excited for the message? Who's excited to hear what God has to say to us? Um, you know, last week we started our series on the Upper Room Discourse, which is, you know, the final teaching that Jesus gave before he went onto the cross. Um, and so this is all about Jesus setting his disciples up um, for really life without him. And there are two elements to this. Jesus was physically going to go to the cross, right? And so there was going to be a period of time that the disciples would not have Jesus with them. And then from there, Jesus comes and he stays around for a little while more, some final like kind of interactions, and then that's it. Jesus then ascends. And so this message that he gives, his teaching he gives to his disciples, plays the role of um, the, the physical farewell that they were experiencing, and then the final uh, kind of farewell uh, that Jesus would be saying to them uh, before he ascends and goes to heaven. And so this is a message that is still relevant to us today because as the modern day disciples, we need to learn about what Jesus is saying to do in this meantime while we're waiting for him to come back. At the same time, last week we also unpacked that John, the, uh, the apostle who wrote this book, really wanted... Uh, to, to, to bring this evangelistic message. He wanted people to know who Jesus is, that he really is the Messiah, and also uh, what kind of life Jesus is calling people into. It's really important, hey? If we dumb down the message of the gospel and say, oh, Jesus loves you, you, you just have to like say this prayer and then you're, you know, too sweet. It's all good. You, you know, you, you've got your ticket, you punch your ticket to heaven, now go do whatever you want. That is not the gospel. And John doesn't allow us that kind of gospel. And so John unpacks what the gospel is like. And in particular, when we read the Upper Room Discourse, we hit this section um, after the section that we call signs. If you can remember that last week, um, uh, the Upper Room Discourse sits in section three, the glory section, uh, the glory being Jesus's um, death and resurrection, and it comes after the signs section, which is all about the seven signs that John records, and John says there are plenty more, and the teaching that Jesus gives in the in-between with all of these signs. And so um, John is saying, basically, Jesus had done everything necessary for people to know he's the Messiah. And I think that's a message that we can still take today. Jesus has done everything that we need to know that He is the Messiah. Okay, so that's really, really important. And so we're going to cover um, the first section of the Upper Room Discourse today. Uh, it's going to go from John 13, 31 to uh, John 14, verse 14. We're going to take a slow look and walk through those passages. But before we do, I need to discuss something really, really important. And this really important thing is the failure of the Powerball. We need to discuss this. It's not discussed enough in, in, um, in church. The failure, and you know what? I don't think it's discussed enough in the newspapers, in the media, or even between just people that have a higher view of our humanity. Because the Powerball puts forward to us that one Powerball, and I'm out of here, right? When I first moved to, to Australia, um, it, we, we, we saw these ads, and they were really funny, right? How many of you remember one of those one Powerball and I'm out of here ads? They, they were like, you know, people living in mundane, if not terrible lives, and they just said, one Powerball, and I'm out of here. Soon after that, I think that the ads have changed. Beck and I don't watch much free-to-air TV at all, and so we don't know what's really happening. But on, you know, from time to time, while I'm watching the footy, one of these ads will come on, and they are now saying, get yourself some Powerball problems. Get yourself some Powerball problems. The problems are whether I want to take my 50-foot yacht uh, on a little cruise or whether I want to take my private jet to some far country. Get yourself some Powerball problems. And this whole idea of the lottery is that you have the ability to completely change your life for the better. That's what it's promoting, right? You can completely change your life by buying into something literally called the lottery. And I don't think we talk about this enough because hundreds and thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, not millions of people 
buy into the Powerball. If not, if hundreds of thousands of people did not buy into the Powerball, we would not have the Powerball. There would not be a jackpot. There would not be anything in this kitty for people. So really what you're buying into is this payment for one lucky soul to get millions of dollars, whereas all the rest of you guys are chumps. You get nothing out of it. And yet we think that one Powerball will completely change my life. You know, one of the things I notice is that when I go through my life and I got certain mentors and people, I have not heard a single respected mentor ever sit down with someone and say, okay, Nate, you, I know that there's things happening in your life and I know that you want to see change. You need to do one thing. You need to get yourself the Powerball. <laughs> that's, that's it. That's it, you change your life for the better. One Powerball and you're out of here. Not a single person, not a single respectable person on the face of the planet gives advice that you get yourself a Powerball and you'll truly change your life, but millions of people across the globe buy into different sorts of lotteries. What in the world is going on? And when I look at this, right, the thing that I am really quite worried about is what are we placing our trust and our hope in? Because we place a lot of trust and hope in things like this that give us a sense of control and a sense of maybe now. And we buy into this sense of chance, of randomness, maybe my time is now. Yesterday we had a family meal with uh, uh, my nephews and we played a game called Dinosaur Bingo. Dinosaur Bingo was where someone reads out the names of dinosaurs and you get a little card and if you've got the right dinosaur, you get to put a token on it. The first one to get four gets to win Dinosaur Bingo. It was a stressful, <laughs> meaningless, Stupid game. I'm sorry. I played it a couple of rounds and my nephews, I don't know how they win, but they won. And it's kind of like, I'm sitting there, not my dinosaur, 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 not my dinosaur. What in the world is wrong with this game? I was like, let me use some of my skill. Let me use some of my ability. Let me do something more than sit and hope that my dinosaur gets called. But it didn't happen. So we stopped the game because Uncle Nate didn't want to play dinosaur bingo anymore. <laughs> Why do we trust chance? And why do we think that following Jesus is taking a chance? How is it that we place our hope in things like, oh, you know, I just hope that my boss sees my work and I'm going to get a promotion? Or if I get this amount of dollars in my bank, then, you know, that, that, will, that will actually set up my life. But then when it comes to the things of God, the things that Jesus teaches us, sometimes there is a bit of a pushback. And sometimes there's a little bit of difficulty fully jumping into the things of God. And I think that that's what we want to explore. And I think that's what Jesus is calling us to explore when he teaches us, especially in this introductory section of the Upper Room Discourse. So let's look at the first section, John 13, 31 to 35. It says this, when he had gone out, he being Judas Iscariot, Judas was going to betray Jesus, and so Jesus dismissed him. And so I don't know whether it was kind of like, let's get the black sheep out, and I want to teach the white sheep. Not being racist at all, there's this talk for <laughs> who were the true followers versus who were not the followers. And so Jesus was now talking to the 11 disciples who would end up all um, really taking the gospel um, to the ends of the earth. And he says to them, um, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So, when I read this section, and when I read John, 
One of the things that I struggle with is that John says, the Father, the Son, glorify, glorify, glorify this one, this one glorifies that one, so everyone's been glorified. And John could have said, and so now comes the time where everything is going to be glorified. But he doesn't. He says, and now comes the time where the Son of Man is glorified, and God's glorified in Him, and God's glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him, and glorify Him at once. What is going on? Now, the Son of Man is a title that is quite specific. And the title is, in particular, in the Old Testament, given to the Messiah. And in particular, is to describe that the Messiah is going to be the dominator. In Daniel chapter 7, in particular, when you read that, you will read about the Son of Man being entrusted with the government of the world. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And so the Son of Man, already built into this title, is this sense of glory about Him. And when Jesus uses this title, He's saying, I'm that King. And that's something that we need to note. When people say, yeah, 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 I know that Jesus uh, lived, but He was just a good man. Jesus doesn't allow that. He calls himself the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He says that I am God. And so when you say, you're a good man, but you're a little bit deluded, it doesn't work. He's either a good man or a madman. And Jesus, in my opinion, isn't a madman because he rose from the dead and proving that he is the Messiah. And so Jesus says, now is the Son of Man, a title of glory, is glorified. But you know that in Jesus' own words, in the Gospels, Jesus actually says, now the Son of Man is going to be given to people, to the religious rulers, to be tortured and killed. So as much as Jesus understood that the title that he was using, uh, uh, rightly so for himself, was a title of glory, he actually said this title is a title also of suffering. And so right in this section right here is a really interesting section because Jesus kind of flips around what glory really is. He isn't talking about glory in a way that is like, oh, look at you, all the riches of the world is upon you, all the fame, everyone will love you, get yourself some Powerball problem kind of glory. But he's actually saying there is suffering in this glory. And I want to put forward to you how do you see God's glory? How do you see God glorifying us, which is something that the Bible also talks about as we edge towards the end of time? There is this glorification in our lives that the Bible teaches us. But does that mean that my life gets easier? Does that mean that my life gets richer and more beautiful and that nothing can ever touch me? You know, I love saying verses uh, and finding verses in the Bible that says, uh, um, uh, no weapon formed against you will prosper. It's in the Bible. Yes, I understand it. But when we take that concept and put it in the sense that we want it to mean, no silly boss will ever hurt me. No relative that is being annoying will ever hurt me. No. And we start to do all these things, and then we find out that, hey, I'm hurting a little bit. We kind of go, well, God, maybe you're not working. Or maybe we've got the wrong understanding of what life looks like. And so maybe we're not really trusting Jesus because we don't know that he's talking about a different life to the life that I want to have. And so when Jesus uses the title of glory for himself, he's not saying, now I'm going to have a good time. Now life is going to be great for me, and you guys can't follow. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. In fact, when Jesus uses the word glory, it's actually a very specific word that he uses. And it comes from the Hebrew word called, uh, it, it, I'm probably saying it wrong, but it's nikbad. Nicobat, and it, re it refers to the revelation of God's splendid activity. So when Jesus says, now the Son of Man, now is the Son of Man glorified, He's not saying, oh, look at me, and there's a halo, and something. No, 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 He's saying, now I am about to reveal the activity of God's splendid work. Now I'm about to showcase God's wondrous grace. Now I'm about to display for all to see this is what God had planned all along. 
This is how God is working. Now, do we trust that whatever God does is good? Because if we know that God is the only one who is good, then whatever his activity is, is by definition good. We don't judge whether God is good or bad based on our circumstances. We judge whether our circumstances are good or bad based on what God is doing. And so when Jesus is saying, now is the Son of Man glorified, he's saying, now is the time for me to reveal God's splendid activity in this world through me. And God's going to be glorified because through me, God's going to be shown what he's actually been doing in history up to this point in time. And so Jesus is all about showcasing God's splendid activity. And so therefore he says to his disciples, where I'm going, you cannot come because the cross is Jesus's alone to bear. And so that's what this first section is all about, okay? And so just remember this. Jesus starts the upper room discourse with saying, this is the moment where God's splendid activity is going to be revealed. Sit tight. This is, you're going to see something magnificent, wonderful. And here we go, verse 34. So this is your part. You're not going to the cross with me today disciples, but this is what I'm going to tell you to do. So in uh, John 13, 34, it says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you are, or you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus says, I'm not asking you to follow me to the cross, but if you are to follow me, this is what you do. A new command I give to you, love one another. Now, this command Jesus had already taught. He said, love one another as you love yourself. We know that. That's earlier on in the Gospels. But now he flips it and he makes it. What makes it new is that Jesus is about to reveal the next level of God's love to us. And so now he says, now you're not just like this self-loving club. Now you're learning how to love the way that I have loved you. As God's splendid activity, His love is being revealed in this next moment. That becomes the hallmark of your existence. Now I want you to notice this, that Jesus didn't say, love the people around you as I have loved you. He says, love one another. And I think that this is something that is a little bit missed, because the gospel necessarily brings us into community. We cannot live the gospel outside a community. Why? Because without being able to love one another. What does that mean? It means me loving you and you loving me. I want, you to, say it, I want to say that again. Jesus isn't advocating a kind of life that you are giving and giving and giving and giving because you're meant to showcase the sacrificial nature of God's love for us. No, no, no. Jesus is saying, no, no, you've seen my example. What's Jesus' example? Did he give? Yes, he just washed their feet. That literally just happened before this. But what happened before that? He allowed people to worship him as the incoming king. He was recognized for who he is. A little bit before that, what did he do? There was a lady who came and broke a bottle of perfume that cost a year's wage to be worshipped by this lady. Jesus allowed people to give to him. He received. Jesus was the only one who understood community the way that it should be. And so when we see people, when we see Jesus receiving, sometimes I think in Christian world, we kind of go, oh, that's Jesus. He's God and he's just being worshipped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying that someone should worship you. No one should pour a, a, a $60,000 bottle of perfume at your feet unless they want to marry you and you are happy with that. But at the same time, maybe use that $60,000 thousand dollars for a house or a car rather than having nice smelling feet for the next couple of days anyway side point jesus understood that that was worship for him that was specific but he received the appreciation he received the love of other people there is a problem in our church where we go to two extremes 
One extreme is that, oh, I'm in a church community and so I'm supposed to give, and I'm supposed to give, and I'm supposed to give. And we have people that sacrifice their health, their vitality, because they're giving without receiving. And then on the other end of the spectrum is like, well, Jesus says that you're supposed to love me, so love me, love me, love me where I'm at. I've got all this brokenness and so you need to love me. Yes, I need to love you. But if you don't give back to the community, you are not loving one another. So where are you at? Because Jesus said, I am showcasing the activity of God by going to the cross and showing you what love really looks like. The fullness of love. And so we are meant to have this community where we love and we are loved. There's some people in this room that need to have a switch in the way that you operate in community. You have been loved and it's time for you to love. But there are also other people in this community that need to have a switch in their mentality where you have loved, but you haven't allowed people to love. Both lead to a deficit. Both ways of living lead to a deficit. Both ways of living takes us away from the community that we are meant to have. But note this, this is so important. Verse 35, Jesus says, by this, what is this? As you love one another, all people will know that you're my disciples. If you have love for one another. Jesus could have said so many things that our culture says. By this will people know that you are my disciples if you sing the loudest in church. If you raise your hands the, lou- the, the loudest. If you, if you, know, you, know, you, know, you know how to say really long prayers. Or you can recite scripture. Now, all of those are part of, I think, understanding what love is and what life is. But how do people see the activity of God in your life? How do people see the glory of God in your life? Can I put it that way? Jesus is saying, now I'm about to be glorified and you guys actually also get to showcase God's glory. How do you do that? If you have love for one another. Now, D.A. Carson, who is a leading uh, New Testament um, scholar, scholar um, he says this, orthodoxy, which is, you know, uh, uh, a good, right theology, without principal obedience to this characteristic command of the new covenant is merely so much humbug. He literally said that. What does that mean? You can be here and know a whole ton about Jesus, Know a whole ton about the Bible. You can explain the creation all the way to Revelation. You can do all of those things, but if you do not love and be loved in the community of God, that is humbug. And now humbug is a word that is a bit strange because we don't use it. What it actually means is that is fake and deceitful. You are being deceived if you think that you can live a Christian life, know this back, to front and front to back and not love and be loved. Well, when I was reading that, I was like, this is heavy stuff. And I wonder whether some of us struggle to follow Jesus, maybe because we don't understand that the revelation of God's love is actually quite often done in the circles of God's family where we learn how to love and be loved. And I don't know who said this, but someone mentioned this, that the greatest risk people can take is to love and to be loved. And I think maybe that's why we reach for Powerballs, where you literally get a one in a million shot at a stack of cash rather than to be in a community where someone actually knows your weaknesses, knows your faults, knows that you have got things going on that are difficult and they still love you, and a community where you can love people and have that love accepted. You know what's one of the hardest things? Loving someone and not having that love accepted. That's really tough. 
But yet Jesus says, this is what the kingdom is like. And why are we meant to do that? I think it's because if human beings actually understand how to love and be loved, something happens where people on the outside go, there's something in that space. And Christianity, I've been reading up church history recently. Church history is littered with people taking Christianity and twisting it for personal gain. No wonder a ton of people hate Christians. Why? Because it doesn't glorify God. It doesn't show the splendid activity of God. But what we are meant to do is love one another. And Carson, once again, uh, he writes this, better put, their love for each other ought to be a reflection of their new status and experience as the children of God, reflecting the mutual love of the Father and the Son and imitating the love that has been shown them. Their love for the world is compassion, forbearance, evangelism, empathy. Since all true Christians recognize that they can, they can never be more than mere beggars telling others where there is bread. I'm not here preaching because I'm better than you. I'm here preaching because I have a revelation that I'm a beggar and I have found bread in the house of God where I have received love and healing in the presence of God and in the presence of his family. And so what I should be doing is going, man, people need this because there is bread here. You are hungry and I can see it. There is a loneliness epidemic rifling through our community. The community of God should be the answer to that issue because we are beggars that have found bread. We are people saved by grace and know that there's grace in abundance here. And that's what we should be doing. But as we go on in the upper room discourse, it's hilarious. John 13, 36 to 38, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Now, Jesus had just given the new commandment. That is pivotal for us to understand Scripture. He's given the most pivotal explanation of what his community is supposed to look like. And what's Peter doing? Hang on, hang on. Jesus, you said, I can't go where you're going. So where are you going? He's focused on the part that Jesus said, don't do this. Huh? Don't do what? It's like, he's like a toddler that you say, don't do that. I want to do that. And so that's where we're going. Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now. So Jesus repeats, you just can't follow me. This is my thing. But you will follow afterward. And Jesus probably said this because... Um, there's this sense that Jesus was the first one to die for the kingdom and only he could unlock uh, salvation. But from there, did Peter die for Christ? Absolutely. And so he said, you will follow afterwards. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. I think sometimes we like to follow Jesus in a way that makes sense to us, right? I think we like the simplicity of the lottery, I, I pay three buck fifty, and I could get three hundred million. Don't talk to me about the chances. How much is it going to cost me? Three buck fifty, and what am I going to possibly get? Three hundred million. I'm in. And you do that week after week. And I don't know if anyone ever gambles here. This, by the way, the lottery was instituted because the government said I don't like illegal gambling, so I'm going to make a state-initiated gambling. That's actually what it started from. Anyway, um, but we like the simplicity of that, right? We like that I get to pay my little thing and then I get to do whatever I want to do. And then if this comes my way, great. If it doesn't come my way, I've only lost three buck fifty. But when we're following Jesus, Jesus doesn't allow us this kind of simplistic, oh, how much is it going to cost me? $200 in entry fee. And then you get eternity. Oh, okay, that sounds nice. No, 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 Jesus says, no, you follow me according to the plans of God. It's going to cost you everything. But Jesus also tells us far more about what we're going to get in just a moment as well. But Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay my life down for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay your life down for me? Question mark. And Peter actually does later. But it says, truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. 
Now, why did this happen? Why did the bravest, the most vocal, probably the oldest of the disciples, why did he have to go through this little crisis moment? Could Jesus, could God have maybe graced him so that he wouldn't have had that? And, and the truth is, when the shepherd was struck, when Jesus was arrested, all the disciples fell away. And what was that all about? You know, I, I, I was thinking about that and I was struggling with it because when you slow down, it's like these guys actually followed Jesus and they had done a ton of crazy stuff with Jesus. It kind of makes sense that at least one of them might have followed through all the way with this whole claim of like, I will lay down my life for you. But I think what is being showcased here is that we don't follow Jesus out of our own strength. And that is another difficulty we have in fully trusting Jesus because the trust that is involved in following Jesus is otherworldly, is beyond our human capacity. See, Carson writes this, all four Gospels report G uh, Peter's protestation of willingness to die. Tragically, the boast that he would never deny his Lord, even to the point of death, displays not only gross ignorance of human weakness, but a certain haughty independence that's the seed of the denial itself. Can you see this? Peter saying, I will die for you, presents a gross ignorance of his weaknesses. When we say to Jesus, Jesus, I'll follow you no matter what. I love singing those songs. I grew up in the Youth Alive revolution where it was like, I surrender all, or what it was probably before the youth of life revolution, but, you know, we sing songs that are like, I give you everything. This is my desire that I will live for you. I give you everything. I surrender all. And they are anthems that, 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 that stir us up, especially when there are thousands of other followers in the same room singing the same song. But when I'm found all alone, it's too easy to deny my Christ. And so Carson's trying to show us here that in this moment, there is this wrestling that Peter's having. He's like, hang on, I am supposed to follow you, right? So why are you telling me I can't follow you? And Jesus is saying, yes, you follow me, but you follow me in this way. You love one another. And Peter's like, no, 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 I'd rather follow you. How, how true is that? If I tell you that the entry cost of being a follower of Jesus is to love the people around you, wholeheartedly and to be loved by them, how many of you will prefer to just, oh, I'll just follow Jesus. I'll just follow him. It's like, yeah, 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 yeah. You follow me by loving one another. No, I'll follow you, Jesus. It sounds noble, doesn't it? I'll follow you, Jesus, to the point of death. I'll go live in the desert by myself and I will read scripture and I'll meditate on you for the rest of my life. Jesus, go love one another. I'll follow you. A gross misunderstanding of our weaknesses, a gross misunderstanding of what God really does in our life, and a gross independence. Man, when I read that, that was really hard-hitting. That sense of, I will follow you no matter what, is an independent spirit that says, I know how to do this. So what are we left with? We're left with this understanding that me following Jesus isn't something that I conjure up, isn't something that I make happen, but rather it comes from a revelation of who Jesus is and what he has done and a grace that enables us to continue to hold on in faith. In the Bible, faith is not something that people come up with, it's a gift of God that we hold on to. And a fun little note for everyone who likes nerd facts. Apparently, it was usual for roosters in Palestine to crow at 12.30 a.m., 1.30 a.m., and 2.30 a.m. They would call that the night watch. They would call that the cock crow. And so when Jesus said, you will deny me three times before the cock crows, it was referring to a three-hour period. You know, I used to have this idea that Peter had one pretty terrible moment of weakness 
where he was scared and he had these people coming in. You were with Jesus. No, I didn't. You were with Jesus. No, I didn't. No, no, you were with Jesus. No, I wasn't. More than likely, Peter stood there for three hours, sitting in his denial for three freaking hours, knowing that Jesus was being tortured in a room that was just around the corner. And I know I wasn't with him. He sat in fear. He sat in his weakness for three hours. We are weak, and therefore following Jesus is hard. We are weak, and therefore following Jesus requires something that is beyond me. So what happens? John 14, 1 to 4, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. This is the man who knows that he was about to die. And he says to the ones who are about to run away, let not your hearts be troubled. This is God speaking to us, let not your hearts be troubled. Yes, I know that my belief in Jesus is weak. It's not always going to produce the fruit that I want. But let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And this is where Jesus unveils where this is all heading. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? This is talking, theologians more or less agree, that this is talking about heaven. This is talking about um, Jesus is preparing a place in his father's house. This is our father's house. This is a place where God himself dwells and he's preparing rooms and there are rooms for us. Jesus is going to prepare that. And, um, and, 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 and Jesus says in verse 3, and I, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself and that where I am you may be also and you know the way to where I'm going. So Jesus then goes to Peter's um, sense of like, man, I'm going to follow you. Jesus is saying, no, no, no I'm going to take you. You just have to continue to believe. You just have to continue to believe. And I'm going to take you to this grand place where there's no more struggle, fear, no more pain, no more suffering. This is where God is. This is the promise of salvation that one day if we hold on in faith and we hold on to Jesus, Jesus takes us. We're not in a place where we're trying to chase a Jesus that we don't know how to follow, but rather we're in a place where we just have to stay close to Jesus and He's going to take us. But man, the disciples don't get it. John 14, verses 5 to 14. Thomas said to him, so now we had Peter struggle with what Jesus is teaching. Now Thomas struggles with it. Lord, we do not know where you are going. Now Jesus literally just said, you know where I'm going. What did Jesus say? Yeah, and you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas is like, no, we don't. How can we know the way? And... um. Carson puts it this way, Jesus is saying, you know the way, you do not need to know exactly where it leads. And Thomas is going, if we don't know the, des uh, the destination, then how do, we, how do we know the way? Can you point us out? Can you literally give us a step-by-step -step understanding of how to follow where you are going? And this is a struggle that many of us have, right? We want to know exactly how this works. The Powerball is kind of simple. You have the date that is set for when they're going to do the draw. You know when you need to buy your ticket by. I don't really know much about this, but it's so simple that you can just understand it. You go to the news agency, you pay your, I don't know how much, you get this ticket, and then you wait for them to announce it. And then you know whether you're a winner or a loser. By the way, one winner, millions of losers. You just bought yourself a loser ticket. But with Jesus... He's saying, so, so where do I pay the entry price? What do I do next? Jesus is saying, stay close to me. And then what? How does it work out? What's my life going to look like? No, 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 no. Follow me and it'll be all good. No, tell me the, the finite details so that I can decide whether I'm really going to do this or not. And Jesus is like, no, come on. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you had known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is saying, come on, you've been with me. You understand this. You're struggling to understand because you don't want to understand because 
saying, I get it, means that we are letting go of control. And that is something we all struggle with. So guess what? Another disciple then goes, I don't get this. And so Philip says it. Now, if three of the 11 disciples, if you want to go four out of 12, which is one third because you include Judas in this equation, within the first section of the Upper Room Discourse, a quarter of Jesus' disciples don't get him. I think I'm in good company. And so Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long? And you still don't know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. This is clear. Jesus is saying, I am God. You've seen him. Um, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who is in me, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So this is a throwback to the structure of the book of John. Jesus actually then goes back, I have perfectly displayed to you that I am the Messiah and that I am God. You know that I am God, and still you're struggling with, how do I follow you? I said, well, you're God. And this is something that we need to reflect on. What kind of God do you worship? Do you worship a God who is pandering to your needs and your wants? Or do you have a God who is actually so wise that when he's created the world and he said, this is how you live, we go, ah. Or do we go, ah. I mean, it's kind of simplistic, right? How will people know that God is God when you love one another? Really? That's that's what we do? Yeah. What else? What about the miracles and fireworks? Love one another. That's enough. And I think we struggle with that because we struggle with it. It just doesn't sit well with our thinking. But Jesus goes on, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, Jesus is being really clear here. You ask anything in my name. In my name means in God's will, okay? So let's just put that out there. Jesus isn't saying, um, say, God, in the name of Jesus, I want a Tesla tomorrow. And I want it driven to my house. I want a black one. The black one. It's really nice. Thank you, Jesus. In your name. Amen. Is that what Jesus is saying? No, no, no. In my name doesn't mean magic words. It means in his will. But still people struggle with this. What does Jesus mean when he says, greater works than these will you do? Does he mean that we're going to do even more astounding miracles than Jesus did? When Jesus actually kind of raised himself from the dead. That's kind of like, kind of up there, you know? He fed 5,000 people with two loaves, no, five loaves and two fish. He's done some pretty crazy things. Or does he mean greater in terms of more miracles? And I think that's where we struggle with the word works, because when we think of the word works, we think of the supernatural works that Jesus did rather than the kind of work that Jesus did. And this comes back to the entry point, the introduction to the upper room discourse, he says that I'm being glorified. I'm showcasing God's wondrous, splendid activity. And you get to do the same when you love one another. Greater works than these shall you do. What does it mean? They're works of love. They are works of love. How do we do greater works than Jesus? It's because the community of God are showcasing God's love in a fresh and a new way. Now, 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 if someone is sick in your community 
and you want to love them, you want healing from the, for them, right? And so you can pray for it, and you can hope and believe that God is our healer, and that can happen. Now, it might not be God's desire or will because He's got crazy plans, and we don't under, always understand it, um, and so that person might not be healed, but we as a community, that's part of uh, the motivation of love. But when we move away from the motivation of love and we make the wondrous the point of it all, then we go onto this slippery slope where God needs to keep doing more wondrous things. If not, He's not alive and He's not active in our lives. But when we understand that everything is motivated by love, that I correct you out of love, that I serve you out of love, that I encourage you out of love. Every freaking Sunday is an opportunity to showcase God's work in our lives. And yet sometimes we're so selfish, myself included. Oh, I'm really not feeling it today. I don't really want to talk to people today. It's happened. It happens nearly every week. I'm in a place where I'm like, oh man, I'm not feeling it. And Jesus is saying, this love that you're meant to have for one another isn't powered by your will. It's powered by my love. It's powered by my grace. It's powered by my presence. And so this morning as we close, I just get this sense, and I was tossing up how to land today, but I really feel this. I think that we need a fresh infilling of God's love this morning. I think there are moments and times where we, you know, take some initiative and we power through and we go and we do. Yes, there are times and places for that, but this morning I sense that God is saying, maybe you are struggling to love because you don't know that I love you. Maybe you're struggling to do the things that I'm calling you to do because you haven't realized how much I have given to you. It is hard to give when we haven't received. It is hard to give when we are in deficit. It's hard to give when we're in a place of struggle. But when we sense the overflow of God in our lives, it's an overflow. And that's why Jesus and, uh, 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 talks about his life in us is like a river of living water. It has its own power. It kind of flows and moves and impacts and changes and transforms places that are dry into places that bear life. So where are you at today, church? Are you in a place where you are overflowing or are you in a place where you are drying up? Because God's love is what powers us. And God's love is what gives us the ability to fulfill the new command that you love one another as I have loved you. Maybe this morning, let's come back to as I have loved you. What do we know about that? How do we understand that? When was the last time you reflected on that? As we're going through Lent together as a church, let that be a focal point. Jesus loves me. Jesus delights in me. My value, my worth doesn't come from what I do. It comes from what you have done. And when we live out of that place, man, things start to shift and things start to change. I, this week, struggled to love. One of the things I've learned about loving people is that I like to love people that make sense to me. I really struggle with loving people that don't make sense to me. Anyone else in the same boat as me? Oh, wow, we've got some human beings in the room <laughs> and a whole bunch of people that are deluded to think that you are really great at... No, I'm totally joking. Can we get the band up? God loves you. What does that mean to you? Is it some kind of fuzzy feel-good thing, or is it the anchor that everything else is hinged on in your life? Why do you do the things you do? Why do you work the way you do? Why do you have those values and principles that you base your life on? 
What does that say about God's love in your life? See, I've come to learn that following God is about wholeheartedly giving myself to one who has already wholeheartedly given himself to me. I'm not into lottery God. I'm not into a God that tells me what is the um, entry cost and then I just wait for him to reward me. I'm not into a transaction. I'm not into random chance. I'm not into working for my salvation. I'm not into any of that. Why? Because I'm not good enough. But I'm into the God who even though he knows my human weaknesses and knows that I will deny him at many points in my life, that my gross misconception or misunderstanding of my own strength leads me to do things that are stinky and wrong. But Jesus still says, when you believe in me, I will take you to my father's house. I'm into a God who is actually building a kingdom on earth that is filled with people who desire to love and be loved. I'm into a God who is building a new way of seeing life beyond the selfishness and the gain that I get for myself. I'm into a God who's calling me to live a life that is bigger than myself. But I'm also into a God who knows that I'm not bigger than myself. And I'm into this God who understands that every day I struggle with my weakness. But in that moment, He is faithful and He is true. And He just says, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you. Understand that I'm with you. I am linked to you. I'm tethered to you. That's where life is at. Come on, why don't we just stand this morning? I really hope that I've expressed what has been on my heart this week as I prepared this message But I do believe that God wants to minister to those who are feeling, perhaps, man, I'm struggling with this concept that God loves me. And I want to stand with you. I want to pray with you. We're going to have a team that is ready to do that with you. Because I want you to walk out of this place confidently following Jesus knowing that His love for you is unbreakable, knowing that His love for you is, uh, is insurmountable. It is more and more and more than enough. So I'm going to close our gathering this morning. I've gone over time. But if you want to stay in God's presence, stay. But if you want prayer, come forward, because I believe that God wants to touch and transform lives this morning. So Jesus, I thank you for your great love. I thank you that your love pursues us. It wears down our defenses and that you are here for us. I pray, God, that we live out of a revelation of your great love, that we are able to trust and place our faith completely in you, Jesus. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, the band's going to lead us in this song. You can stay, you can just meditate, you can reflect on God. If you want prayer, come forward, and we're going to have people ready to pray with you. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Lift Church or on Facebook at Live Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.